You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 16, Jehovah's Witnesses, Part 2. Last week on On Belief, our guest Don Wilburn Sabo described the unique demands and the unique heartaches that are placed upon Jehovah's Witness women. This week, my guest Jerry Miner is describing what life was like for him. Jerry was disfellowshipped for the same reasons that Don was, and he takes us further behind the curtain to this very secretive organization. Jerry, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Jerry, please tell us how you became a part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I was uh, raised in it. I wasn't born in. My mother um, became a member when I was around seven years old, so that would have... And she uh, became affiliated with them probably from the time I was seven um, till she became a fully committed member around the time I was nine, I think, uh, around 1977. Um, She had some relatives that were previously witnesses, a a sister. Um, I don't know how long my aunt was a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know when she started, but she was um, one a lot longer than my mom. And, uh, but the initial contact was through their door to door work. Um, some witnesses came to our house and I think that this, uh, I think you wanted to touch on this too, uh, in the uh, mid seventies. I, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like there was a push not only to expand the religion itself, but a push to expand the religion in areas that may not have been before. And one of those things was the, the African-American community. And, and I say push, and I, I don't necessarily mean that, you know, there was a concerted effort. I just mean that it just, it just started to take fire in the, in the African-American community. Um, I don't know why. Um, I don't, you know, necessarily think that there was some kind of, uh, again, like I said, sort of concerted effort to do that. Um, but it just seemed that there were a lot of African-Americans coming into the Jehovah's Witness organization around that time. And, uh, and I am, my mother is African-American. Um, so I remember seeing, um, them in our neighborhood and it being an event. I lived in, a in, in what would be called the projects here in the United States, uh, of the, uh, subsidized housing when I was growing up. And then during that time, I remember the witnesses coming through our, um, our housing project and, um, it being a big event and everybody talking about it because it was predominantly this white, white people, white group, uh, walking through this, uh, this, this black neighborhood, this black neighborhood, you know, do not see that every day. So it was a big deal when they came around and I think it impressed my mom and my mom had some contact with them. So it kind of like generated her interest in the, in the religion. And from then, from there, she like like I said, she had a sister that was involved, uh, which also helped. Um, but she took on a study from uh, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses that came by our house, um, started to study the Bible with her through one of their publications, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses publications. And then um, 
after a few years, she decided to dedicate her life. So as with many, a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they raised their children to be Jehovah's Witnesses also. And that's what my mom did with me. I went to the meetings with her every meeting, never missed, <laughs> um, unless I was with my dad, who they were divorced. Um, and my dad was not a Jehovah's Witness. You went from a fairly worldly upbringing to a very strict, high-demand upbringing. What was that like for you? My mom was searching for something, and she was a person that actually went from group to group. And it seemed that um, some of the other religious groups that she was with, she was a member of um, the Church of Christ, um, weren't, for her, strict enough. At least that's what she used to say. And so um, something about this group just, uh, it just clicked with her. Um, and for me, the things I saw the difference was, was, first of all, like this religious group, this church that we were going to now was, uh, requiring a lot more of us. Um, I remember asking like, oh, cause at that time I was, you know, around the age, I wanted to become a Cub Scout and I asked my mom if I could become a Cub Scout. And I remember her taking me to the kingdom hall and saying like, well, we can have that kind of fun here. And I'm like, I'm looking around and like, there's nothing but chairs in here. I don't see like crafts or you know like the kind of stuff that they tell me you're doing cub scouts i don't see that here um so i immediately saw that difference of like everything that i wanted to do that may have been a problem um for us as jehovah's witnesses was replaced by some jehovah's witness activity um so that it became really like life encompassing everything that we did everything we thought about we thought about it in terms of being a Jehovah's Witness. I think that was the biggest difference. So what I learned in school, um, being able to salute the flag, uh, to say the Pledge of Allegiance, what I watched on television, uh, the friends I hung out with, uh, all came into question all of a sudden. Those weren't questions that um, I had before, my mom had before. Did you feel like a pretty big outcast back then? Yeah, you know, I actually felt bad. I felt like, uh, you know, like I was doing something bad, <laughs> like I was doing something bad. Um, and uh, as time went on, yeah, I, that, that was something that I, I'm sure a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness kids feel is that, uh, I wanted to suppress that. I wanted to, didn't want to, you know, to be more so public. Um, but there were times that I had to quote unquote, um, stand up for my faith. And so that meant like I had to go out in the hallway while they were doing Pledge of, Pledge of Allegiance. So I couldn't play sports, uh, couldn't participate in, um, in any activities that were, deemed religious or had to do with holidays. Yeah, I felt like a big outsider and a big um, a weirdo. <laughs> and was treated sometimes like that too, yeah. That's a lot of changes. That's a lot of demand put on someone so young. Did you ever rebel? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, like I said, my mother and father were divorced. And so I had kind of a divided um, household, you know, so when I was at my dad's house, I was almost a different person, you know, I could, I could be free and do whatever I wanted, or not necessarily ever what I wanted, but I could do the things that I couldn't do in the Jehovah's Witness household, so I could celebrate holidays, I could watch Ghostbusters, yes, I could watch rated R movies, I could hang out with my friends, um, go on dates, all that kind of stuff, and so I did, um, but what started to happen is um, I started to get the guilt from my mom and that side, um, from the Jehovah's Witness side, uh, telling me that, you know, you're leading a double life. And um, I started to spend less and less time with my dad and more and more time with my mom and Jehovah's Witnesses to the point where I like by the time I got in high school, I was spending very little time uh, on with my dad. 
One of the things synonymous with Jehovah's Witnesses is door knocking, but that's not what it's called in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's called field service. Can you describe field service to us? Uh, field service is an evangelizing work, So, and especially with Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, at the time that I was in, uh, it meant a lot of door-to-door work, door-to-door knocking, um, and um, cultivating um, interest that way. So you'd knock on somebody's door, and if somebody talked to you, you'd uh, try to come back and talk to them again, um, and try to get recruits that way. I think now there's a lot more... Um, street corner work where they just stand there with the uh, stand if people recognize that um that wasn't uh that um popular <laughs> with Jehovah's witnesses when i was when i was in um it was more face-to-face contact um it kind of kind of encouraged that and and the kind of witnessing that witnessing is uh, using quotes that they're doing now um would have kind of been looked down upon when i was in uh, at least in my group uh, my milieu um my congregation i think would have thought that as a little cowardly but you know I, I i don't know you know what led to the changes or why that the you know why that's changed so, so much currently or even if it's different in different areas i don't know it seems like you did an awful lot of field service as a child it seems like you spent the amount of time that you know piano prodigies would spend on their craft or, you know, high level athletes would spend. Yeah. Most of my time was spent doing, I shouldn't say most of my time, but a lot of my time was spent pioneering. And at the time I wasn't, when I was, when I was in high school, I wasn't a fully baptized member, but I was still doing the evangelizing work of a, of a baptized member. They call that pioneering. Um, and that's if you, um, commit at that time, it was 90 hours a month to the preaching work. So it's three hours, average of three hours a day. You have a theory on why the door knocking and the field service is so important. I just saw some, somebody in Cora answered somebody's question. The question was, why don't people, when I share the word of God with them, why do people become uncomfortable? And somebody went into a long diatribe that's more about like um, these groups that we're talking about than just, just Christianity overall. But he was saying that, you know, when these people go and knock on doors and just like I was saying, it creates a, you know, trauma bond, trauma bond is a a, kind of a strong word for it, but it creates this bond because you are not going to convert anybody. I, you know, I never converted anybody straight up door to door, never happened. If it got any, anywhere close, that person was probably crazy or something was wrong with them. You know, most of the time it was, somebody who was familiar with the group from somewhere else. And so they were getting indoctrinated somehow, you know, whether it was a family member or, you know, uh, a wife or a husband or something like that. It, it so rarely came from going door to door. But that work, you know, like I was doing it three hours a day, um, reinforces all that stuff because it's so bad. It's so hard. It's so discouraging that you have to double down. And you also get back with people who are like, Yes, this is the truth, and nobody out there is realizing that, and that's why we should be even closer together, you know? We've discussed on this show before that Jehovah's Witnesses are an apocalyptic-type brand of Christianity, and that some of the language is quite harsh and quite visceral. What is it like when you're growing up and you're constantly hearing about the apocalypse and you're constantly hearing about the end times? Is that a real threat for you when you're young? I had nightmares about it. Um, I always expected it 
to be a few months away, not years. And um, there were always things that if you asked me at that time when I was growing up, what, why do you think that the end is so close? I would be able to tell you. I would go, well, you know, this happened in the news yesterday and that happened and all these other things happened. And, you know, we can see it all around us. It's going to happen. And um, that was just had the feeling that I had um, that I was given. It was just always imminent. Uh, like I said, a matter of months. Um, and I was taught this is in publications um, that it was definitely going to happen um, before the end of the century. Um, so that would have been pre-2000. Um, and I could – I don't have it right in front of me now, but I could cite you publications that said that, that they changed actually. They changed the wording that um, where it said um, instead this – you know, instead of that being fulfilled – at the end of the century, I think now the reprint of the publication says soon or something like that. Um, and um, every um, calculation that they make, because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are really into uh, numerology and um, finding numbers that are in scriptures and adding those together and coming up with dates, um, that all this stuff was supposed to happen before the end of the 20th century. Um, so that, that was what I expected. Something else that is discussed a lot with regard to the Jehovah's Witnesses is the belief in demons, demonic possession, devils. Again, how real was that for you? That was extremely real to me, um, but also one of the things that was a little bit of a crack for me. So at the time that I was in, uh, there was a, a prevalent rumor that the Smurfs were demonic or demonized. Um, I was a big fan when I was growing up, and so at the time, I couldn't understand why, and I would ask why this particular toy cartoon was demonized. All I was told was that it was magic, and um, it really, really was a, a, a popular rumor with Jehovah's Witnesses. I know kids, people that grew up on the other side of the country that heard that same rumor, and there, was, there were certain stories that went around, um, particular stories that... It kind of changed, but these urban um, legends that went around to different kingdom halls, different congregations of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I've since studied the origins of that rumor, and I think it's, it comes from um, an evangelical kind of rumor that kind of just permeated into the Jehovah's Witness culture somehow. But um, very much believed in possession of inanimate objects, so I was encouraged not to shop at thrift stores because you don't know where those objects came from and they may have been used in a, in a sat satanic ritual or um, uh, any other kind of religious ritual because we were taught that Satan controls the whole world and so that meant any other religious artifacts could also be um, demon-possessed. So Bibles could be demon-possessed. <laughs> Churches could be demon-possessed. Um, yeah, I, and I definitely grew up with uh, a, a big fear of that, hearing a lot of stories, um, a lot of ghost stories, <laughs> people would call them, about um, demonic possession. Uh, I even heard stories growing up about demons killing people. For more on this episode, including the rest of the interview, bonus episodes, and bonus material, including production notes, head over to patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. You can find Unbelief on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can visit the website at onbelief.com.